So we've been, we've been journeying through what I call, or many call, the weirdest book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, in this series called All Things New. And of course, we're playing on the idea that all things are changing, uh, even in our church. You know, church has been meeting on Saturday mornings for about two years. We changed the name from City Reach Brossard to City Point Church. We changed the the, the day from Saturday to Sunday, we're going to change the time from 10 to 10.30. We're going to change the location uh, to the hotel next to the Marshalls. All these kinds of things are changing and just playing on that idea and looking into this theme from the book of Revelation. You'll see at the end of the book uh, that there's this promise that God will make all things new. And we've been looking at the book of Revelation in a bit of a strange way because we're doing it in big chunks. Uh, two, three chapters, well, really three chapters at least at a time each time we meet. So I joke with people that our services last about three hours, uh, but they let us watch a movie for free in the same screen. So those of you who are visiting with us will be here for the next three hours. Sorry, and we locked the door so you can't escape, all right? No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Uh, but we do it in a different way uh, because the way that the book of Revelation was read by the people who originally read it, they did not read it the way that we read it today. Today, when we read the book of Revelation, we, we have a big stack of books next to us, or we open up our computers and we try to decipher the mystery of Revelation. The ABCs of unlocking the book of Revelation. What's this symbol mean? What's this image mean? What's the... The, the, the who's the Antichrist, we'll talk about him today. All these things, we try and decode the book as if it's written in some sort of magic language uh, that only we can understand today in the 21st century. We're so smart, um, as if the people in the first century didn't understand it. Uh, but it was written to people who, who lived in what is now Turkey, um, to, to seven churches that were under... Uh, um, uh, state of persecution by the Roman Empire, doesn't matter what emperor you think was the emperor at the time, they were being persecuted, whether it was Nero or whether it was Domitian, doesn't matter, they were being persecuted, they were losing their lives for their faith. The writer of the book, his name is John, he's writing from an island where he's in exile for his faith. So these people are looking for hope in very, very difficult circumstances. Their world is changing very, very quickly, and they need hope. And so John writes this book. Uh, I argue it's the weirdest book that's ever been written in the Bible. There's no book like it in the Bible because it is a mishmash of three different styles. So in the book of Revelation, you have prophecy, so you have things being predicted, uh, foretold, and forthtold. So God says things directly, but he also says things will happen. So you have prophecy in it. It's a letter because it's addressed to seven different churches. Uh, but it is also, and this is where we get the name from, it's an apocalypse. That's a Greek word that we translate in English, revelation. Apocalypse does not necessarily mean the end of the world. What the word means is you, you peel back the curtain and you see what's behind. As if we could 
peel back this big screen and see what's behind it. I've, I've climbed behind there, and you can see there's all kinds of stuff behind there. There's huge speakers behind that screen. There's scaffolding. There's ladders. They hide all of the stuff behind there. No one sees it. So in an apocalypse, the idea was to give people hope who were in difficult circumstances, you would show them what was beyond the curtain of life. You'd show them the spiritual world, and you would show them that there's something going on behind the scenes that we do not see. There's a kind of a cosmic battle between good and evil that's going on. And in apocalyptic literature, the idea was to give people hope and it often centered in on the fact that God will change the world one day, that he will redeem this world, that he will transform it, that he will make all things new. You do see apocalyptic literature back in the time when Revelation was written, but Revelation stands on its own. And the reason, major reason why is because John identifies himself. He says who he is, and he also says... Uh, do not seal up this book as if to say the time is at hand for these things to happen. So this would have given the people tremendous hope, tremendous courage, even as they were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. So they read it in chunks. They probably read the whole book at once if they even could get a copy of it back then, if they even could read so it's different then than it is today. And so we're trying to put ourselves back in time a little bit and have the mindset that these people had when they read this book. I would argue that it is the most relevant time for us to read the book of Revelation. It's the only book in the Bible that promises you that you'll be blessed if you read it. Did you know that? If you read it out loud, actually, it says. I don't know if any of you ever tried that before, to actually read it out loud, but it says you'll be blessed if you read it. Blessed are you who hear it. Uh, it's the only book that says that. Interesting. Uh, Im implicit is that you could actually understand what you're reading, uh, even though we seem to be so confused by it today. So we've been journeying through this in this time in our history on planet Earth that is unprecedented in terms of how things are changing in terms of how technology is changing and how it is driving all of the cultural change that we see worldwide. It's not just North American culture. It's everywhere around the world. We see rapid changes. We see rapid changes in morals and in values. We see rapid changes in terms of politics. I mean, nowadays you can literally be glued to your television set all day long watching news feed after news feed after news feed because it's changing so incredibly quickly. Any of you know that there is a final um, store, one left in the entire globe, this is a North American chain, but any of you know that there's one more blockbuster video left? Any of you remember blockbuster video? So you would, you would actually go to a store to rent a video. So you would go and you'd get, a, you'd get a physical copy of some video and you would bring it home. Now, back in the day, they used to be on VHS. Do any of you know what VHS is? Okay, so the hands don't go up as much when I say VHS. Do any of you remember what beta is? Okay, less hands even, okay. So that, that they used to be a little, little smaller tape, and then they had VHS, and now, of course, 
We don't do that anymore, right? We, we just sit in our house, we press a little magic button, and it all comes, just dumps into our television set, wonderful technology. There's one blockbuster left. It's in, I think, Alaska in the US, just one left. And people are going to it now almost as a vintage piece because it's, it's survived. Of course, the whole blockbuster chain essentially died because they refused to change and refused to go the electronic way. And now probably every single one of you in this room is on Netflix and you're watching television shows, you're watching movies, everything is Netflix. You sit there, you put your feet up and it's all electronic, it's dumped right into your flat screen 4K television or whatever you're watching, right? So it's, but it's kind of interesting to see how Blockbuster refused to change and Blockbuster died. And it died very, very quickly as rapid, rapid technological change which drives rapid social change, rapid moral change. And now, more than ever, if you look worldwide, Christians around the world are being persecuted more than ever before. And that really isn't even that new. The last hundred years, we've noticed this, that the, the, the persecution has increased. You have places in the world where, where you cannot publicly express a, a Christian uh, uh, paradigm or worldview like we did this morning. If you do it publicly, people find out about it. They're going to put you in a prison. They may take your life. They may do horrible things to your family. There are places in the world, many of them, that that's the way that it is. We live in kind of sheltered North America here where, you know, the, the, uh, our understanding of persecution is, you know, they change the tax law against the church and we get all upset. Uh, but they're not throwing us into prison here in North America like they are in other places in the world. So when you look at what's going on on planet Earth, and then you look at the book of Revelation, and you put yourself back in time, you say, wow, there's some relevancy to this book. And so now we're moving into uh, chapters 13 to 15. Last week, we looked at this statement that kind of uh, appears two, three times in those three chapters uh, I think it got chopped at the bottom. Uh, but this idea, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. What calls for patient endurance? There is something that is happening in chapters 13 to 15 of Revelation that is very, very intense. Uh, and we talked about this word saint, and we paused and asked the question, how do you know that you are a Christian? Which is a term the Bible uses uh, saints is a term the Bible uses for Christian. And we stopped. We said, well, wait a second. The book of Revelation seems to tell us that we can know if we're a Christian or not, that we can know if we're a believer or we're not. It, it makes it very clear that you better know what side you are on in this whole kind of cosmic battle of good and evil. And we talked about, well, how do you know that? Um, and you can listen to it online. I've, I've posted it and it recorded well, all right? So now we're moving into Revelation 13 and 14 and 15. This is the period of time that we've been looking at that some, some call the tribulation. And this is a time where God pours out his judgment and his wrath on an unbelieving world. So, and we talked about this in the previous weeks, how God, in his character, in his nature, we love to talk about the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God, but we also need to understand that that implies that God is a just God, and God is a, God is a holy God, and God must 
deal with the problem of sin. And he must deal with the problem of evil. And he must bring about judgment. And he must bring about ultimate redemption. Hence this book that we, that we look at, the book of Revelation. So the biggest question that people have always had about the Christian faith, it still continues today, how can God be all-powerful and yet all-loving and allow the world to continue in the present state that it is? And, the, and it's a great question. And the answer is the book of Revelation. So without the idea that Jesus is coming back, without the idea that Jesus is going to judge this world, what we have is a God that has some huge moral problems. Uh, but we have a conclusion. We have the book of Revelation. We have the promise of the second coming. Uh, regardless of how you interpret this book, and there's like four or five different schools of how you interpret it, doesn't matter. We all agree on the reality that Jesus is going to come back, and that's a central point. So if we look into this chapter 13, 14, and 15, this period of time, the tribulation, typically this is thought to be a seven-year period that's going to come sometime in the future, a time of judgment where God will pour out things on this planet that has never seen before. And we've been looking at this, and today we're going to look at the most talked about, the most written about, the, the thing that people make movies and television shows and books and magazines and you name it. I mean, you can't count the amount of press that this section of the Bible has had over the years, uh, in particular, Revelation chapter 13. And you'll see a picture on the screen there that I dug up scouring through the internet. You say, what in the world is this thing? And this is a description. This is an image. Remember, John writes in all kinds of imagery in the book of Revelation. It's, that's typical of apocalyptic literature. And he sees this image. And he, he, he writes about this right after the section where he sees another crazy image that we talked about two weeks ago is this dragon in the sky and this woman and we talked about that whole the interpretation of that and what that all meant and right on the on the edge of that right after that he sees this this beast he says uh, revelation 13 i saw a beast coming out of the sea you read this description, you say, my goodness, it had 10 horns and seven heads, just like the dragon in the previous chapter. 10 horns, seven heads with 10 crowns on his horns. And, and each, on each head, there was a blasphemous name. That's a name that speaks profoundly against God. The beast I saw resembled a leopard. And now with Photoshop, you can make these things. Resembled a leopard, but had the, the feet like those of a bear, the mouth like that of a lion. You say, wow, this is some crazy, crazy DNA engineered thing. Like, what is he seeing, you know? And of course, he's writing in pictures and in symbols that presumably the people back then would understand. He's speaking of some kind of leader with great power, great authority, apparently. Uh, the dragon from the previous chapter gave the beast his power and his throne and his authority. And one of the heads of the beast, we're told here, seems to have had a fatal head wound that was healed. And the whole world was astonished, the Bible says, and followed this beast. And this is a world that is very different from what we're seeing today. It's a world where a large amount of the people are 
unbelieving, they're rejecting God, they're watching all of these things happen on planet Earth, and they're following this leader. The whole world was astonished, followed the beast. The men worshipped the dragon, which again, from the previous chapter, that had given authority to the beast. And we know from the previous chapter, the dragon is none other, none other than the devil himself. And they worshipped the beast and they asked, who is like the beast who can make war against him? Been quoted so many times in popular media, this, this section. Uh, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? And the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and speak against God uh, for a period of 42 months. That's three and a half years. And he opens his mouth and he blasphemes God. And he blasphemes his temple. And he's, he's making war, the Bible says, against the saints, the Christians that are alive and well on the planet at some, in some way. And he's given authority over every tribe, every nation, every people, every language group. And everybody worships this thing, this, this leader, presumably. Uh, except those, in, uh, in verse 8, except those uh, who have been written in the book of life. Uh, belonging to the lamb slain before the foundation of the world or slain from the creation of the world, some versions say. And this is, of course, the, the, the Christian people, the people whose, whose names have been in the, are in the book of life, okay? Speaking of the security of their salvation, only those people do not worship this leader. So it's a terrible, terrible time, and you see this statement, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, and then you read the chapter more, and you see that this beast has kind of a kind of a vice president, kind of a helper, kind of a second in command, and he drives people to worship this leader. Uh, he he makes a, an image that people are to worship. He deceives people, and he of course puts in this system that is now, I mean, so famous and so often quoted. There's this system where people cannot buy or sell without a mark on their on their hand or on their forehead. And uh, the part that all the movies quote, you know, he forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor free and slave to receive a mark on his right hand or his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the, the, the name of the beast, the number of his name. And this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast for it's man's number. His number is 666. Oh, my goodness, the movies made about this uh, that I have seen, dozens and dozens of them. Uh, too many times, all right? Uh, and I'll tell you about that in a few moments. But this is the chapter. And this individual who we see in Revelation 13 is none other than the Antichrist. And he is now on the scene, and he is apparently this, this world ruler that rises to power in the time that we're reading of, whenever it will be. And he has incredible authority, incredible power, and does pretty well whatever he wants. And he has, of course, this vice president. I know I'm not making a statement about U.S. politics there, okay? You know, any president that comes, we think he's the Antichrist, right? No, I don't think Donald Trump is. Maybe you do, but I don't. I remember when, I remember when Barack Obama was elected, and the guy was like, a rock star. Do you remember? It was medio, medio, euphoric, like 
people were going crazy when Barack Obama was elected. Some people went from Canada, drove over to, to Washington to, to, to see the inauguration. Did anybody go? Do you guys go? I mean, this guy was incredibly popular. And I remember, and sorry, but Trump is wrong on this one, okay? The crowd wasn't bigger when Trump was elected. It was a whole lot bigger when Obama was elected. It was a sea of people. And I remember people talking at the time, and they said, with seriousness in their eyes, and they said, do you think he's the Antichrist? Look how popular he is. And I just laughed at them, and I said, no, 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 he's not the Antichrist. No, no. Uh, the Antichrist is a whole lot worse uh, than Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Kim Jong-un, whoever you want to pick on. Uh, he's a whole lot worse. If you look at some of the traits in Revelation 13 about this leader, um, uh, first of all, you have, a, you have a lesson to learn. In that time, there is a moral vacuum on planet Earth. We've looked at it in the first 12 chapters. It's a godless world. Uh, it's a world where people are being, they're seeing things, they're seeing things happen on planet Earth, and they refuse to repent. You have calamity after calamity. You have problem after problem. You have things that people can't even explain with words that are happening on planet Earth, and yet you have a group of people, most of them on the planet, who refuse to repent, we're told. It's a moral vacuum. And a great lesson to learn, ungodly leadership rises in a moral vacuum. That means the morals have been sucked out of the place. And whenever that happens, in most cases, you will see ungodly leadership arise. You can see that in many different contexts. I mean, you survey history and you survey some of the despots and some of the autocratic leaders and some of the totalitarian leadership. Uh, in various places in the world at various times. Often, you have those leaders come when there's a climate where it's a moral vacuum and it's, it's a godless culture. And whoop, you see the ungodly arise in leadership. And they take advantage of the situation and they promote themselves and they rule. And sometimes they rule for a long, long, long time. Uh, and in this particular setting, you have that on steroids. You have the pinnacle of ungodly leadership arise in this character, this leader that we sometimes call, as the Bible calls him, the Antichrist. So, but it's, it's a principle that you can see even in business, even in an organization, even, dare I say, in a church. You can have, when a church has a moral vacuum in it, and unfortunately some churches do, you will see oftentimes an ungodly leader will begin to lead that church and lead it into big problems. I have seen that happen uh, in all kinds of places. It's rare, but it does happen even in churches. Um, but in organization and business, some of you, even in your workplaces, you have seen that happen where there's a moral, morally bankrupt place you're working in and you see, wow, the leadership that, that has come to run the place is like, oh man, they're really, really messed up. It's something that we see happen over and over again. And in Revelation 13, it's on steroids. You look at some of the characteristics of this Antichrist. First of all, there's supernatural things going on. 
there seems to be a fatal head wound that's been healed. Uh, that doesn't happen. That's a supernatural thing. Um, he is proud. He is he blasphemes. He speaks against God. That's a, that's what it means. He's, sl- he's slanderous again against Christianity and against God. The world worships this this leader. Uh, he wars against Christians. He has power. He has authority. I mean, this is the worst, the pinnacle of the most evil leadership that you can see. And you see him referred to, again, the font didn't work too well there, but Daniel chapter 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you will see the same person being referred to by Daniel and by Paul in different ways. So this is, I mean, you think of the worst possible leader the most ungodly, the most immoral leader that you can imagine. And you amp that up and put that on steroids. And that is what this leader will be. So it brings to, it brings to the surface uh, a big, big problem. And uh, I call this the problem of evil. And this is personified in this chapter. Uh, what this leader will do and what his little vice president or whatever will do you really have to come to grips if, if you're reading this book with the problem of evil. What do I mean by this? You know, we, we in the modern age, uh, we think we're so intelligent. We think we're so smart. You know, most, most people who you're going to interact with who are not Christian people, I mean, if you attempt to share your faith with them, they're going to probably be somewhat antagonistic against your Christian faith. They're going to say, oh, come on. They're going to raise up all these objections. How can you believe in, you know, Adam and Eve? How can you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? You know, how do you even know he existed? How can you look at a book like the Bible and believe the Bible when the Bible condones racism, polygamy, all these things? You're going to have all these accusations and all these criticisms because, of course, we're so smart and Christianity is a relic of the ancient world and, you know, these morals in Christianity are horrible and your God hates gay people and they're going to come up with all these objections. You have, I'm sure, heard of many of these. Here's what happens, though, when things happen that you can't explain. We have to deal, even in we think we're so intelligent today and we've evolved to where we understand everything, You have to deal at some point with the problem of evil. You have to somehow explain when you see people do things or when you have had things happen to you and those things cause a disturbance in your whole perception of life. And you have to somehow qualify those things. You have to somehow explain those things. And we seem to have a difficult uh, uh, situation on our hands today, even though we're so intelligent, because these things happen often, and they happen more and more often, and they seem to happen more and more quickly, case in point, uh, in the city of Toronto, which has just, just experienced not too, too long ago, uh, an individual who drove a vehicle in a crowded street, and, and took people's lives at random. Well, what happened in Toronto this past week? You have an individual who goes and shoots people at random. A 10-year-old child lost her life. A 19-year-old woman lost her life. 
And you look at this, and we can try to come up with all of our, all of our intelligent explanations. We can say, oh, the individual's mentally ill. You know, we need to fix the problem of mental illness. Oh, well, you know, there's too many guns out there, and uh, the city of Toronto is falling apart. And oh, well, you know, and we try and come up with all of these things, and yet we see these events happen more and more, and they seem to be more and more uh, intense. They seem to be more and more violent. They seem to be more and more depraved. Let me tell you, what we see there is the problem of evil. That's what it is. And the Bible qualifies it, and the Bible explains it. And we can try to rationalize all these things. We can try to find our fancy psychological terms to describe them. I'll tell you what the Bible calls them. The Bible calls them evil. And this leader that we see in Revelation 13 is the personification of evil itself. And we, my friends, we have to come to grips with this reality. There are things that happen in this world that are purely evil, and the Bible explains it. And in my view, the Bible is the only religious book that has a proper explanation of what is wrong with this world. Sin has come in and ripped the place apart. And evil is, as it were, on the loose, at least it seems. And the Bible has, bears no, has, holds no punches, holds nothing back in explaining it. The Bible is blunt honest in trying to tell us over and over again, there is evil, it is real, the, 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 the devil is real, the unseen world is real, it is a reality. And we need to qualify it and we need to call it what it is. Many of you, many of you, almost all of you are parents in the room, and except some of the young people, right? And one day they probably will be too. Uh, and as parents, we have to do this. We have to sit down with our kids and we have to explain to them at a very, very young age, you need to watch out for this, these, these people. You need to watch out for this kind of activity. You need to stay away from this. You need to stay away from that. I mean, when our daughter was young, really, really young, we trained her. We said, you never talk to parents. You never talk to strangers, right? You never talk to them. What's a stranger? We would say anyone, right? No, that's a little too intense. But you, we start training our kids when they're really, really young. So, you know, you have that person who comes up to you and they offer you a chocolate bar and they want to pat your, the puppy dog who's in the van. And, you know, that you stay away from that. That is bad. Then we try and sensitize our children that there are things in this world that are evil. And what we're doing is we're wrestling with that problem. And the only way to qualify it is to call it what it is. I can remember in my own experience uh, that led me to Christianity uh, as, a, as a young boy and teenager and into my, into my early young adult years, Boy, oh boy, I mean, I learned this the hard way. So even as a young boy, I had a, I had a draw. Uh, I had an attraction to, to the monstrous, you know. And that starts really innocently when you're a kid. You know, you're five, six years old, and you see some cool monster, you know, Frankenstein or whatever, and you start getting, oh, that's cool. And, you know, you get into this when you're young. And see, but the problem with me is that I got into it more and more and more. And I had a fascination 
with the reality that there could be some spiritual world or something behind the curtain, as it were. And I got into it, but I got into it the wrong way. And I started to discover more and more as I began to grow that that world was actually real. It wasn't just a fantasy. It wasn't just a just an idea on a movie screen or a television screen or in some magazine, but it was a real world. And I started to realize that that world was beginning to take over my life. And that's what happens when you play games with evil. And I realized that, that there was something as I grew and grew and grew that was beginning to take over and beginning to control the way that I thought, the way that I perceived life, my whole worldview, my whole understanding was colored by this reality. And in my view, there was power in that reality. There was fear in that reality. Uh, there was something that people couldn't really explain. So there was a draw. There was an allure. There was an attraction for me as a young boy and a young, young adult growing up. And then I realized, because I was confronted with the gospel story, uh, that that thing that was beginning to take over my own heart, my own way of thinking, was a bad thing. And that thing could be stopped by the power of the gospel. And that could be transformed, changed, that I could be changed, transformed by the power of the gospel. And that's what made the gospel so attractive to me was that there was something even greater, something even more powerful than the problem of evil and the power of evil. And let me tell you that the way that this is all presented today in the popular culture is, is so backwards and so mixed up compared to the way that you read the scripture. What you see in the scripture is that even this antichrist, even this world leader that has persuaded the whole world to worship him is nothing compared to Jesus himself. So Revelation chapter 14, uh, the solution, the answer to the problem then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb. Ah, so out of the sea of moral vacuum comes the Antichrist. But then the next thing that John sees, I looked, and there before me was the Lamb. You, do we really think that all of these things that happen on planet Earth and all of this evil that we see, do we really think that it takes Jesus by surprise? Uh-uh, doesn't take him by surprise at all. Everything is under, somehow, his sovereign plan of redeeming this world. I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, of course, referring to, to the Middle East and Israel, and with him, 144,000. Remember those guys? We saw them uh, a few weeks ago, the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And you see a description of these 144,000. I call them the super saints. I mean, they seem to be so perfect, these, these men, presumably. And they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And they're, they're purchased uh, as the first fruits to God, we're told. They're, they're blameless. No lie was found in their mouths. They're the 144,000 super saints. 
And that's pretty well all we know about them. Yes, 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 I know the Jehovah's Witnesses make a big to-do about them and the cult groups make a big to-do about them. But the book of Revelation just tells you who they are and that's it. They don't give you all this extra gobbledygook uh, that all the other cults and all that give you. They don't give it to you. They just tell you there's 144,000. They've been picked out of the planet by God. Uh, they're, they're, they're holy men. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. But the point of that is none of this that's going crazy on planet Earth in this time that's being referred to takes God by surprise. None of it takes Jesus by surprise. Then I saw another angel, verse 6, uh, uh, flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel, like what we sang about today, to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, to every tribe, to every language, to every person. And he said in a loud voice, so you have an angel now proclaiming the gospel message. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. None of this is taking God by surprise. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. In other words, don't worship this leader. You need to worship God is the message that's being proclaimed. Once again, as it's been proclaimed for 2,000 years, you have it being proclaimed again, and this time by an angel. Nothing takes God by surprise. A second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon is where the Jews went into captivity, uh, 6th century BC. Fallen is Babylon the great. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships, the beast or his image and receives the mark, uh, then he too will drink of the wrath of God's fury. And you see a vision there, actually a vision of hell that is, that is the, the, the ultimate judgment for those who worship this leader. You say, wow, 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 that's really, really harsh. Well, when you're presented with the gospel message over and over and over again, and yet you refuse and blatantly reject the gospel message and choose to follow this type of leadership, well, in a sense, you're making your own choice, and this is the idea there. And so the people who, dis, who, who take this mark and who do not reject this mark, whatever it is, and we don't really know, these are the people who have aligned themselves with this leader, and those who do not, verse 12, this calls for, again, patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and who remain faithful to Jesus. Nothing takes him by surprise. He has it all under control. It is working somehow according to his timing and his plan. I don't really understand how, but it is. This is the promise that we have. And he says, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. And then you see this image of a, of a harvest taking place. And uh, there's, a, there's a, uh, someone described there who looks suspiciously uh, like someone in the book of Daniel. This is presumably Jesus himself. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man right out of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand, if you know the image of a harvest and a sickle. And then another angel called, uh, came from the temple and called in a loud voice, take your sickle and reap, he says. And, and there's this huge reaping that takes place. 
And it looks like a reaping of judgment that's happening here. It looks like a, a harvest that leads to judgment. And then you have another angel that comes and he prepares um, this kind of wine press. Back in the day there, that's how they made wine. And the image of a wine press is used as a picture of the judgment of God. Is very, very graphically described there. You can, you can read it in the end of Revelation chapter 14. So in other words, the time of the judgment of God is at hand. An angel knows it. Jesus knows it. The 144,000 know it. And you have this right on the heels of this Antichrist leader. So nothing, nothing, nothing takes God by surprise. He is so much greater than the power of sin the power of Satan, the power of evil, so much greater. And then you see in uh, the book of Revelation chapter 15, you see it is really going to come full steam, uh, full throttle. I saw in heaven another great and mar marvelous sign, uh, seven angels that had the seven last plagues uh, because with them, God's wrath is completed. And I saw uh, what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire standing beside the sea. And those who had been victorious over the beast. Wow, there are people who have victory over him. Those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and over the number of his name, they held harps given them by God. And they sang the song of Moses, old Moses from the Old Testament, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And you see that, wow, God is, again, he's not surprised. He's not surprised. He has it under control. And his judgment is going to come to completion. And he is going to, to pour it out on the evil that is present in that day. And that gives us great hope, friends. You know, you, you may say, this book of Revelation, it's so, it's so graphic. It's so, I mean, I don't know. Like, how does this apply to my life? Let me tell you, for me personally, again, the reality of evil to me in, at the end of the day gives great hope to the Christian. Do you know why? Because if evil exists, God exists so much more. If we can call evil, evil, then we have a moral standard. If we have a moral standard, then we have morals. If we have morals, then we have God. If we have God, God is good. Uh, if God defeats evil, then he's more powerful. Do, do you understand how the, how the chain works? And so you, we need not be intimidated. We need not be threatened. We need not be fearful of what is happening now in this world, what may be happening in our own individual lives, what may be happening in the lives of people we know or of our family members, and we qualify it and we say, that's bad, that's wrong, that's evil. We need not be intimidated. We need not be afraid because we serve one who is greater, who is greater. What does the scripture say? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Greater. And we must understand that. The scripture declares that when Jesus died on the cross, what does it say? He disarmed the powers and the principalities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through the cross. So the, the nail in the coffin of evil started to be driven at the cross. And it will ultimately be completed at the end of this book, the book of Revelation, when we see all things new. Will you stand with me? I don't know what you're going through today. 
I don't know where you're coming from today. And Luciana, if you could come and just play on the keys softly as we close in prayer today. I don't know what your, what your background is or your story. Some of you I know bits and pieces. Uh, but in life, sometimes that's all you learn from people. You learn what they share. Uh, and sometimes they don't share everything. But I don't know where you're at today. But I would venture to guess that you have crossed paths with things that you would say, I have no way to explain it. I have no way to qualify it beyond what the Bible says. And the thing that I went through or the thing that I saw my family go through or the thing that I saw my friend go through and even as I look at the news and we're all impacted by these things. When we look at them and we look at them through the lens of God and the lens of the Bible, can I just assure you today, can I encourage you today God is greater. God is greater. God is in control. He is not taken by surprise by anything. No unjust situation, no immoral situation, no evil that has happened to you has gone uh, unnoticed by God. And he has a plan and he has something that he is working out that is so much greater than whatever you have endured. And he will make it right, my friends, because greater is he that is in us than he that is in us.